Well, hey, hey there, happy innovators. How you guys doing, huh? How's your week going? Is it going good? I hope so. Mine's going pretty good. Anyway, have you ever noticed how uh, a lot of the singer-songwriters or rock groups from the past, the, the greats, you know, like the Rolling Stones or, uh, you know, the Beatles, Paul McCartney, uh, you know, U2, you know, these bands that were fantastic, you know, Fleetwood Mac, uh, you know, the greats, right? Did you ever notice how they had like this period of time in their careers where they were writing songs that were just absolutely timeless, you know, like amazing pieces of art, really, um, lyrically, melodically, you know, uh, just think about all the the famous songs that we all know. Like I said in the last podcast, uh, you know, the songs that we hear, like at the grocery store, or the songs that we hear on the radio still, or, you know, when we're at a sporting event or something, you know, these artists have this moment in time when they're kind of really hitting their stride as songwriters and they're they're making these albums that are just amazing, you know. Um, but then, as time goes by, as they get older, or, you know, they become more successful, maybe too successful, um, maybe, right? Um, they seemingly, at least to me, okay, it seems to me that they lose somehow the ability to continue to write great songs. And I'm not exactly sure why that happens. I'm not sure, you know, it's, but it is something that I think about quite often. You know, I'll, I'll hear a song by U2 from The Unforgettable Fire or uh, The Joshua Tree even, or even like Octung Baby. Maybe all the way up to like the pop album by you two but like they're a good example like the new songs that you two releases you know they're not horrible they're not fantastic and amazing either though and they're not at least in my opinion they don't seem to be you know um, as intricate and artistic and creative and you know both musically and lyrically you know, and I'm not sure uh, why that is. And U2 is a good example because when I think about it, it's like I can kind of piece together a hypothesis as to what maybe happened or how some would argue, like, you know, maybe what went wrong, you know, with that apparatus that we knew as the band U2 that wrote those great songs like Where the Streets Have No Name or Pride in the Name of Love or, you know, Bullet the Blue Sky. I mean, these masterworks of songwriting, you know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You know, it's like the lyrics are poetry and the music is innovative and original and exciting and fresh and new and had never been done before. And now... You know, it's like when they release songs like their most recent songs that they've released. Yeah, you know, they're they're well-written songs, I guess, but they're not 
at least in my opinion, they're not like art anymore. They're just pop songs where in the past, especially a group like U2, you know, the music was art. It was really different. And, you know, I don't know, all the happy innovators that are listening to this podcast right now, like, I don't know how old you are. Okay. But like, I would imagine that if you're old enough to remember when you two first came out, they were a brand new band. You remember how exciting their music actually was and how different they sounded from other groups. And uh, it's easy now for that kind of idea to be convoluted, you know, by the idea that you've heard the songs a lot. So they don't sound that different anymore because they're so familiar to the audience. But um, I, I notice a difference and I kind of have just over the years have analyzed that. Like what happens? Like what happened to Paul McCartney where, you know, he was writing these amazing songs, you know, the, in the first half of his career. And then all of a sudden... Like, what happened? Like, he lost the ability to write absolutely amazing, timeless music, you know? Um, And maybe I'm way off base with this. Maybe my thinking is wrong. I don't know. But, you know, it's like I hear what I hear, you know? And maybe you agree with me, right? Like, these groups that, you know, have written kind of like the music of our lives, something happens in their career or in their life or whatever, where they lose the ability to make timeless and amazing songs. They'll still be able to sell out the stadiums that they've sold out. They'll still draw as many people. They'll still sell a lot of records or what with whatever they release. Okay, that, that won't change because their back catalog has secured that kind of future for them, right? But let's face it, like, you know, like the last Rolling Stones album, do you even know what the name of it was? Do you even know a song off the album? And are we hearing any of that album anywhere right now? No. If you want to hear it, you have to, like, hunt it down and find it. But I guarantee you, right now as I'm talking, somewhere in the world at all times you know 24 hours a day there is somebody somewhere listening to jumping jack flash i mean it's happening or they're listening to gimme shelter or you know uh, satisfaction you know forever and ever those songs will be being played somewhere 24 7 all over the world constantly being played right So now the next question is like, what does happen? Like what makes it, what, what happens to an artist that kind of like cripples their ability to write great songs? And, you know, like I said, I thought about this a lot, especially with a group like you too, because I mean, I'm so, usually anyway, I'm so disappointed with the songs that they've been releasing lately because they lack 
you know, that kind of spark, that kind of magic dust, you know, that's in those songs from back in the 80s and the 90s, you know, like they've lost something. And I think, I think, I think it has something to do, maybe, with the amount of money and the amount of success uh, changing kind of like the environment in which the band is functioning, writing, and recording. You know, like for instance, the group of, you know, Adam Clayton, Larry Mullen Jr., Bono, and The Edge, that group of men, you know, back in the 80s are a different group of people now. I mean, obviously, time has passed. Uh, a lot of money is made, a lot of tours, a lot of record sales, a lot of fame, a lot of interviews, you know, uh, you know, probably, you know, multi-millionaires many times over. Um, you know, they want for nothing, um, you know, and maybe, maybe they're not hungry anymore. You know, they're not on fire anymore. They have nothing really to prove anymore you know you know maybe it's because you know after decades of you know fame and fortune you know their perspective changes so much that um you know it's it alters their ability as artists to really be creative and to really connect with that magic something You know, like maybe somehow they lose that. I don't know for sure. It's like a hypothesis in my mind. And you may disagree with me. You may think that U2's last album, I think it was called uh, Innocence and Experience or something. Like their last album was their best album. But I don't think so. Like I am a pretty big U2 fan. I have been for many, many years and I've tried very hard to listen to their new albums and like to really like what they're doing. And I just can't, you know, like it's like this band that was once like a bonfire, you know, like every time they released a new album, it got better. You know, the songs were amazing. The guitar parts were innovative and amazing. The lyrics were poetry. The drumming was creative and clever. And of course, you know, Adam Clayton as a bass player, you know, will go down as one of the greatest bass players of all time in rock history. But for some reason, I don't know, they seem to have lost that spark. Now, I'm not just picking on you 2 I'm just citing them as an example. But there are other groups that are like that, you know, they lose their magic somehow. And... Um, you also notice too, maybe you don't, but I do. I notice that a lot of the times you'll have a band that does really well. They're really successful, like Guns N' Roses. Okay, like huge, you know, Appetite for Destruction. Absolutely, like one of the best-selling debut albums of all time. You know, you still hear it every day on the radio, like as if it came out last week. I mean, it's just a monumental sound recording by this group of guys that 
were hungry. You know, they were in Los Angeles or whatever, playing clubs and kind of scratching their way, you know, to the top. And they got there, right? They got there. They recorded this record, Appetite for Destruction, and it just blew everybody's mind. Still does. And then they followed it up with something like what? Uh, the Great Spaghetti Incident or whatever it was, or Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. And, you know, the band started to splinter, right? Uh, Steven Adler, their drummer, was gone. Uh, you know, Izzy Stradlin was gone. And the lineup changes, and yeah, you still get the sound. You have Slash and Axl Rose, but really, you know, why couldn't they? What Like, what happens where they can't keep it together? You know, I, I'll never understand that as long as I live, like what a band or how a band could make it that far, you know, like against so many odds, like achieve like the impossible level of like a diamond selling artist, you know, not even platinum or gold, like beyond that. But then they can't keep the band together, like not even for business purposes. Like let's say they hate each other as people, which could happen you know, uh, over time or something, but you can't keep it together even on a business level, like where the relationships are strictly business and you show up for the show at the stadium in your own bus and you don't talk to anybody. You just get on stage and you play Welcome to the Jungle again for the 5,000th time, right? Like they can't do that. Like what happens there? And then, and then, like what they do is like they'll reunite the band like with all the original members for one show or something but there'll be one guy who's not there you know from the original lineup like it'll be everybody except for one guy and I always kind of wondered if that was like a legal issue like there's some kind of thing that's written into their contract where you know, if they are a band that exists with these members, here are the names of the people in the band that signed the contract. Like, is there some kind of legal thing, some kind of contractual thing that says if the band breaks up, if anybody leaves that lineup, then they cannot get back together. Like there has there there must be right some kind of legal ramification for reuniting all of the original members. Now, that's not the case all the time because you have an example like with that group, the police, where you know they had broken up for a very long time, for a couple decades or whatever, and then they decided to get all three original members back and do one final like farewell tour, right? Brilliant idea and long overdue and they were one of the only groups I can think of that was really able to pull that off and um, you know like kudos to them right and I'm sure you know they made a killing at the box office right I mean uh, you know the ticket sales are probably through the roof they probably made enough money to fund their lifestyle for the next 10 years after that tour ended you know but it's so rare to see that happen like at, in any story in rock and roll history, you know? 
Uh, and it doesn't matter the band. It doesn't matter the group. You know? I'll never understand that. Now, KISS did it. Okay, KISS did it. They reunited with all the original members, the four original members. They put the makeup back on. And they did a couple tours. And I actually went to that tour. I saw that concert. I think I saw it twice. And, um... Oh, it was amazing, you know? It was amazing, but there again, you know, a couple years later, you know, Peter Chris and Ace Freely are out of the band again, and they fell right back into, you know, that, <laughs> what do you want to call it? That version of the band that was, a, like, you know, less than, you know, the original version of the band, like what the fans really want, you know? And uh, they cannot, for whatever reason it is, it's legal or financial or personal or whatever, they just cannot keep it together. And uh, yeah, you I mean, I get the idea of like pressure, you know, the pressure of being uh, you know, a band that is playing stadiums, you know, and selling millions of records and you know, everybody wanting to get a piece of you and uh, how the money distribution, you know, would mess things up and how people would become jaded and bitter over financial disputes and royalties and, you know, that songwriting credit and all that kind of stuff. I guess you can kind of see, I mean, using you 2 as an example, um, they're one of the only bands in rock and roll history to equally distribute their money with all four members, regardless of who wrote the song or whose idea it was or who did the lyrics or whatever, they all got paid the same amount of money, you know, and more often than not, that's not the case. You know, you'll have a band like Bon Jovi, okay? People don't realize this probably, but John Bon Jovi is the only person in Bon Jovi who is signed to the recording contract. The other band members are signed to a contract with him. He's their employer. Most people probably don't realize that. Okay? Now, that obviously, at this point, it's been proven to have worked for Bon Jovi. <laughs> right? You know, they're still together with the uh, exception of their bass player, Alec John Such, you know, who was booted out or whatever a couple decades ago now, like right after they were at their peak, you know. And uh, so he's not there anymore. It's not the entire original band. But for the most part, they've kept it together, you know. And that's commendable. And you have groups like that, you know, like U2, uh, who else? Aerosmith. Uh, although I hear they're having problems now with their drummer, Joey Kramer. But, eh, you know, Aerosmith always seems to kind of snap back eventually. You know, they, they're smart enough to know it's what their fans really want. And they're also, like, you know, serious en enough about what they're doing to get past the whatever hurdles would keep them from being Aerosmith. You know, the band, you know. And, uh... So it's an interesting thing for me to think about. I spend a lot of time thinking about it, really, because I'm, you know, as time goes by and we, I, you and I get older, you know, things change. Groups change. Uh, they come and go. 
You know, there's one hit wonders, whatever, but you get that handful of groups that are still, well, you know, out there doing it in one form or another, usually in some kind of fractured, you know, uh, incomplete version of the band, you know, but sometimes not. Sometimes the bands manage to keep it together. And they managed to keep writing great songs. I can't personally think of any groups offhand that have been around for maybe 30 or 40 years that are still writing absolutely stellar songs, you know, or uh, having amazing concerts, you know. Um, I could be wrong. I could be, you know, way off, but I, I don't know. I don't think so. But do you, do you ever think about that kind of stuff? You know, you, you'll hear the story, right? You'll hear the story of the band you love. You know, their bass player quit. You know, he didn't want to do it anymore. And uh, now the next time you go to see this band that you love, it'll be an incomplete version of the band. Actually, <laughs> it reminds me of the first time I ever saw the group The Mission UK who are one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, when I first went to see them in concert, like for the first time, um, the night before they came to my town, the, you know, the concert that I was going to, their guitar player had quit. And they had the roadie, the guitar roadie, sitting in for their guitar player, Simon Hinkler. And I remember just being so bummed out because I didn't get to see all four original members of the band performing their music. And, you know, it just so happens that this morning I was looking at the program I bought from that tour, from that concert. And, uh, you know, it folds open into this poster-sized photo, like a poster of the Mission UK. And that evening when I was there for that concert, I got everybody in the band to sign this picture like the signatures of everybody in the mission, except for Simon Hinkler. That's the only autograph I didn't get. And you know what? That sucks. You know what I mean? Like one night away from getting the autographs, you know, and, and meeting the band and everything and watching their concert and just taking all of it in, right? Um, the night before they came to Cleveland, Simon Hinkler quit. And that was it. And uh, never got to see that lineup. Something that I regret, something that bums me out, and something that really sucks. You know? Like, uh, yeah, I'll never forget it. Um, it shouldn't be that way, you know? <laughs> Why? Why? Anyway. You know, when I was younger, probably, you know, back in like the 90s, 1990s, um, I was like a 20 something or whatever. And this idea of tribute bands was kind of like being introduced at that time. You know, um, a tribute band is like a, a group of people that will adopt like the look and the sound of a famous band you know, and they'll perform the music, uh, you know, verbatim, 
as best they can, you know, as a tribute to the band that they're emulating. Um, like, for example, um, you know, a group like U2, again, will have, a, you know, a band called Zoo Station, you know, named after one of their songs. And they'll have a guy who sounds like Bono and, you know, a guy who can play guitar like The Edge and Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. You know, they're all represented on stage. And, you know, they try to look like U2. They try to, you know, bring as much U2 to the performance as possible. Right. And back in the day, that was kind of like... um, viewed okay in a negative way you know by like me and my friends you know my peers my contemporaries we all kind of frowned on that idea of being in a tribute band or going to see a tribute band or you know whatever you know like there was just something to be avoided you know but over the course of the past 20 or 30 years or whatever since that concept of a tribute band was kind of like first really being introduced um, it's it's kind of morphed into something else you know and it's at least to me anyway in my opinion from my point of view it's morphed into something that may be very significant and very important especially for the tribute bands that are you know, paying tribute to the greats, you know? Um, And the reason that I feel that way, okay, is because when you really think about it, let's say, for instance, there's uh, the group Fleetwood Mac, okay? Uh, One of the most successful bands in rock and roll history. I think to this day, they have like one of the like highest selling albums of all time with rumors, you know, this massive album for them. And uh, just song after song of masterpieces, just amazing. And they had a long career of great songwriting, you know, and great singing and performance, whatever. So you'll have a tribute band, and there is a tribute band, uh, Fleetwood Mac tribute band. They're called Rumors of Fleetwood Mac. Okay, and I've recently kind of like been checking them out. All right, I found them, and I've been watching it, and... You know, like watching their videos, their concert videos, because they're filmed and recorded very well, like professionally. And they're a tribute band, you know, they try to emulate Fleetwood Mac. But what's weird is they sound fantastic, okay? And in the case of this group in particular, the rumors of Fleetwood Mac, in my opinion, they actually sound better than Fleetwood Mac. As if that were possible, okay? But think about that. It's like, for this generation of young people that are not going to be able to see Fleetwood Mac in concert, it's not going to happen. The band broke up and they have splintered into this, you know, once again, some other version of the band with, you know, major players, like, missing and replaced by some other stand-in, some other, you know, backing musician that's filling the slot. But this group 
uh, rumors of Fleetwood Mac is a very good example of like how a group of people can preserve the essence of Fleetwood Mac because you know when you really think about it the songs by Fleetwood Mac okay we're using them as an example only as an example there's many many other groups that I could you know drop in here you know but we'll use Fleetwood Mac um, for this purpose um, they like let's say they get older they're not able to sing and perform the way they used to you know back in the 70s and the 80s and we're talking 30 40 years ago you know now they're, they're older their bodies have changed their their voices have changed their ability to play they have arthritis now uh, a whole host of things that could change and so you you know you have this younger group of people that are kind of picking up the mantle of a group like Fleetwood Mac and they're playing those songs that really when you think about it have transcended even the people that have written the songs like that song Sarah by Fleetwood Mac is bigger than Fleetwood Mac like it's bigger than Stevie Nicks or Mick Fleetwood or you know Christine McVie or you know it, it's bigger than them even you know, the song will live long after the members of Fleetwood Mac are no longer here. So in a way, doesn't it become in some strange way, like important to have a group of people that have adopted the, you know, the, the mantle of Fleetwood Mac and they are performing these songs live in a live setting for people uh, to enjoy you know, an evening out to hear those songs, you know, being played live, you know, coming through uh, a PA system in an arena and loud and, you know, with the audience and, you know, the whole feeling and tribal aspect that comes along with, you know, playing a live concert or being at a live performance, you know, watching that happen. It's so interesting to me. It's like, um, it becomes like maybe, okay, like it becomes in a way like a time capsule, like a way of continuing that experience long after the original members are no longer included or involved in the concert or in the process or in the project. They're, they're not even here anymore. But their songs live on, the music lives on vicariously through these younger people that were so taken with their music that they decided to honor it and pay tribute to it by mimicking it, repeating it, performing it verbatim as best they can, right? think about that like a group like kiss you know especially kiss because they wear makeup right so their faces are covered uh you know the whole kiss experience now like at this point 40 years later after they first kind of hit the scene 
has become bigger than even the band members themselves. You know, it's more than those people. It becomes more than the sum of its parts. And, you know, it would make sense, right? It would be probably uh, very interesting and cool to see, you know, a group of younger people, you know, adopt the mantle of Kiss, you know, take on the makeup and the costumes and the show and the, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the songs, the performances, you know, all of it, take it all and reproduce it for you. You know, 20, 30, 40 years after Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Peter Chris, and Ace Freely are no longer even alive. They're not even here anymore. Wouldn't it be an interesting idea you know, to be able to still go and get somewhere that KISS live experience. Because, you know, especially with a group like KISS, let me tell you, and I know firsthand, uh, there is nothing on the level of a KISS concert. Whether you like their music or not, or whatever, the experience of being in that audience and watching that spectacle there aren't any other groups that can even touch it, you know? So what a tragedy it would be, right? If that opportunity was no longer available in any form, you know, let's say the day comes when the final surviving member of KISS finally breathes his last and they are all gone. KISS, the original band, is no longer on this planet and they're replaced or their legacy is continued by a younger group of people. You know, how many generations, think about this, how many generations out can something like that go? Let's say, for instance, the original members die, a tribute band continues the legacy, they get old, they die, and then another younger set of people, a younger group of people adopt that kiss mantle and continue that performance verbatim the way kiss did it right think about it how far out can that go you know what i mean like are we going to be able to watch in some form you know a kiss concert like forever is that possible I mean, it is actually possible. It could be. And I think that that's kind of what I'm talking about here is like what was once kind of looked down on by like me, okay, in my world, my opinion, something I frowned on, this idea of a tribute band, like, oh, please, you know, that you've got to be kidding. How pathetic, you know? Uh, Well, you know, time passes and your perspective changes and Here I am kind of scratching my head a little bit thinking, hmm, you know, there might be, there might be something very interesting happening here, you know? Now, I'm going to end this discussion today by talking about a group that is a newer group, actually. They were, you know, they're not uh, brand new, but newer. They're not a veteran band, you know, a classic rock band or something like Kiss or Fleetwood Mac or one of the greats, you know, the oldies, you know, 
But the group Static X. I don't know if you're familiar with Static X. You know, they used to be fronted by a guy named Wayne Static. Okay. And Wayne Static was a very eccentric, you know, outrageous character. He wrote the songs. He was the front man. He sang. He played guitar. And he was kind of like the face of Static X. Okay. But the band Static X had developed a very large following of people. Okay. And the fans for Static X were very devoted to the band and very loyal to the band. And a few years back, I'm not exactly sure. It might have been like 2005 or something. I should have written down the exact date, but uh, not too long ago, um, Wayne Static, the lead singer of Static X, accidentally overdosed and he died. Okay. Now, in the past, okay, naturally that would have meant the end of Static X. Okay. But that's not the case. That's not what happened. And this is so interesting to me and so cool. Check this out. By popular demand, okay, like from the audience members, from the fans of Static X and from the band that was left behind, there was this outcry, like uh, a demand for them to kind of continue somehow. And if you ask me, okay, what they came up with as the solution to this problem was a masterstroke, okay? And something that all other musicians, all other bands should take note of and should watch with great intensity because it's very interesting. Now, what they did was they came up with the idea that because Wayne Static's appearance, his physical appearance was so outrageous, like he had this hair that went straight up like a paintbrush, like off his head and spiked and he had a long goatee. I mean, he had a very honed, quaffed, specific look you know, a specific appearance that if you were to wear a costume that looked like that, people would say, you look like Wayne Static, okay? Like identifiable. Well, they decided to find somebody who could sing the songs and play guitar as good as Wayne Static. And then they made like this mask and this costume that was kind of like a like an artistic, futuristic stretch of the Wayne Static look, like what he looked like, like a costume that could be put on by this person and he could emulate Wayne Static. And what's interesting is, like, that was good enough for the audience. Like, they wanted it. And so did the band. And so they did that. And they continue to go. I mean, there's still a band. They're still touring. As far as I know, I think they're going to still be releasing records. And it's so fascinating that that could happen. Maybe not to you, okay? But to me, it is. Like, like all musicians take note. Like that is a very clever and artistic and interesting solution 
to a problem like that, you know? And maybe, like, you know, if you were to do something like that with another group that lost their front man, like Stone Temple Pilots or the Doors, you know, these groups that lost their front man, it wouldn't work as well because Wayne Static had such a, you know, distinct look and style, you know? He was almost like a walking, breathing cartoon character. And I would imagine that probably made it easier to make that transition. But think about that, you know? Like when you go see Static X now, what you're getting is the audience and the band together paying tribute to this character that is no longer here. Isn't that interesting and fascinating and very clever and very creative, you know? It's not quite the same as like a situation like with Stone Temple Pilots where their lead singer died and they replaced him with another guy who kind of looks like their old singer. He kind of sounds like him, you know, or Alice in Chains and they lost Lane Staley. So they get a guy who can sing the parts. Doesn't look anything like Lane Staley, by the way. But, you know, he can sing the parts and like that's good enough for the audience. Like they can still go and hear, you know, We Die Young and they can still go and hear Wood and, you know, Rooster, you know, all the songs they like by Alice in Chains. They can still go and hear them live, still get that live experience. But, yeah, it's not quite the same. You know, it's not. I mean, it can get close and it can be enjoyable, whatever. But it's not quite the same. But in the case of Static X, go check them out. See what I mean? It's fascinating. It's maybe, in my opinion, okay, the beginning of a new idea that we'll see maybe in the future repeated over and over again with different groups. I would imagine that will probably be the case. Like a version of a tribute to the original member that died, but done out of tribute by the band and the audience together. The people who uh, came together around that music and enjoyed it enough to demand that it not end, even though the front man, main songwriter, is no longer in the band, no longer alive, even. Think about it. Pretty cool, pretty amazing, and it's a reality in the world that we live in. So check it out. See if you agree with me or not. And with that, my happy innovators, I'm going to let you go right now. I have a lot of work to do. I'm a little bit tired today, actually. Um, So until next time, remember, folks, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Take it easy, everybody.
Okay, happy innovators. I got a couple of things I want you to listen to today uh, for the end of the podcast kind of thing. Um, The first thing I'm going to share with you today is a song that I wrote a long time ago called Dream On. And, uh, you know, my wife and I were just talking about this song uh, earlier today. And, you know, we're kind of like over the years have come to the conclusion, okay, that of all the songs that I've written, um, there are probably like three songs that, you know, have done particularly well for me. Like if I had a, a greatest hits album, you know, it would have three songs on it. And one of them would be the song Dream On. And uh, so I figured it would be kind of cool maybe to share it with you today. Um, I'm not sure if I've shared it before at the end of a podcast, but I suppose it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, you know, you don't mind a repeat performance, right? So first up, you know, I'll give you uh, the song Dream On. And uh, I wrote it a long time ago, probably... Back in like the year 2000, maybe. It was one of my first that I wrote on my Tascam 4-track cassette recorder. And, um, you know, I told the story before about how when I had recorded this song originally, um, I, you know, was not particularly happy with it uh, the day that I recorded it. It was like a rough idea. You know, I kind of did it all in one shot. And um, like I said, I wasn't like, oh, you know, I wasn't like really excited about it or anything. But um, I was kind of thinking to myself when I was going to bed that night, like, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll probably like erase that song and I'll start over again on a new idea. And so that was the plan. You know, I went to bed, powered everything down, you know. And uh, expected that when I woke up in the morning, I'd go back into my studio and I would erase that song and record something else. And fortunately, that's not what happened. What did happen was I woke up in the morning and I decided to listen to the song one more time before I erased it. And I listened to it again and I thought, you know what, it's actually not so bad. It's actually pretty good. And so I wound up keeping it, and it became uh, a song that I would eventually go on to re-record once I got, you know, better equipment and everything. And I made, like, a nice, clean, digital recording um, of the song Dream On, and it wound up becoming one of my most popular songs. And I thought that was pretty cool. So, um that's what you're going to hear today. I'll let you hear that. And then I also have um, a podcast that I did a long, long time ago, back in the very beginning, the like the origins of me podcasting at all. You know, it was like the fifth podcast I ever did. And it's about my brother, Stephen, and uh, a piece of art that he had made and uh, the story behind that. And um the reason I wanted to share it was because it's one of my favorite podcasts that I've done. And I think probably because I wind up laughing a lot in that podcast. And it's actually an interesting story too, but you know, my brother is one of the funniest people I've ever known in my life. 
And uh, he's been on my mind a lot lately because just recently, uh, you know, I found out that he was sick. You know, he had actually caught COVID. And, um, you know, I was a bit worried about him and everything. It's a pretty serious thing. So, uh, you know, I've just kind of been thinking about him lately. And uh, that happens from time to time, you know, with certain people in your life, right? Like they just kind of enter your mind for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, you think about them, you know, they're on your mind. So uh, I figured it would be kind of fun, you know, to share with you this podcast from probably back in 2016, 2017. Um, Like I said, the fifth podcast I ever did back when I had absolutely like no idea what I was doing, you know. So uh, I figured you might enjoy that. Um, Check it out. And without any further ado, uh, Dream On by Pipe Choir and Snowflake 33, Episode 5, Steve and the People's Art Exhibit. Check it out. Peace out. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.
Okay, here's what I want you to do. If you're listening to this, do me a favor. Just close your eyes for a moment and think of the funniest person in your life who makes you laugh harder than anyone else does. Got it? Are you laughing yet? Good. Now, when I do that, I think of one person, and that's my brother Steve. I have four brothers, two older and one younger. The oldest is David, the second oldest is Stephen, the star of the show today. Then there's me, Michael, and I have a little brother named Daniel. And they're all very talented, great, generous guys. But Stephen is different from anybody else that I know. And of all the people that I've ever known, He is definitely one of the most extreme personalities. Ever since we were little, Stephen was like the king of irreverent humor. He was always drawing humor from sarcastic and inappropriate subject matter. But no matter how crass his comments were, (laughs) and they always were, he he was always (laughs) really really funny (laughs) and his timing (laughs) was impeccable he was the most disobedient son to my parents growing up and (laughs) he really knew how to push my parents buttons (laughs) and it was hilarious probably not for my parents but It was absolutely hilarious, the stuff that he would do. And he was constantly getting into trouble. He drove my mother crazy. Like, my mom would tell us, do not do this, okay? And Stephen would immediately go and do exactly what she had told us not to. And that was funny. But what's even funnier is that he would do it in a way that he would just totally get busted. And then he would argue with my parents and like lie to them like he didn't do that outright, even though they just watched him do it. And I shouldn't laugh at that, probably, but it was always so funny. (laughs) He was like a real life cartoon character and he totally tested the patience of my parents more than any of us did. And it was hilarious. It's even funnier to think about it now. You know, time has gone by, he's gotten older, and he's matured a little bit. A little bit. And the years have kind of slowed him down a little bit. He still has that streak of irreverent humor that just cracks everybody up every time we're around him. So, while much has changed with him, it's great to see that much has stayed the same with him as well. In fact, to this very day, and by that I literally mean today, because I just talked to him. Steven is, still, hands down, the funniest person that I have ever known. And I have known a lot of very funny people. But Steven is so funny, still, that at this point, he doesn't even have to try. He doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to do anything. 
he just has to have that look on his face. Like, you just know he's about to say or do something. You just know it. And you just start cracking up before he even does anything. Another thing about Steven's personality that's very unique to me is he's always had this affinity for anything that was alternative or outside the mainstream. And I mean way outside the mainstream. And an example I can give you really quick. He's always loved these obscure sports teams. For some reason, these teams that no one's ever heard of, nobody cares about, he's like a huge fan of these teams. It's almost like he is a devotee to the dispossessed. Another example I can give you really quick, and it's probably a better example, Metallica. Everybody knows Metallica. Well, a long time ago, before anybody else knew about Metallica, Steven was a huge fan. And I'm not talking about the Kill 'em All days. I'm talking about prior to that, okay? He was a huge fan, and he was ridiculed for that by a lot of people. And those same people that were making fun of him for liking Metallica, three years later, were huge fans of Metallica. (laughs) So, in some weird way, and I can't even believe I'm saying this, but it's true, Steven is way ahead of the curve when it comes to certain things. Now, for all of his weirdness and all of this extreme personality that he has, he's also a really, really nice guy. I want to make that clear too. He's a gentle guy, he's easygoing, and everybody who knows him knows that. He has friends today that were friends with him when he was just a little kid. And I can't say that about too many people that I know. And another thing I can say about him really quick is that he's an extremely hard worker and he gets things the hard way. He doesn't cut any corners. He has never been handed anything by anybody. He went to college and he paid for all of it himself and he double majored. So anybody who's gone to college and double majored, you know how hard that is. Well, while he did that, he worked full time and he worked a second job. He paid for all of his college himself, and he graduated from college with really good grades, and he went on to start his own business. And and these are things that I've always kind of paid attention to. When Steven walks into a room, the room gets happier. He's that kind of personality. His will is good, and his spirit is good. But he's just got this streak of irreverent humor that is always there, and it's always really, really funny. Now, over the years, Stephen has kind of earned a legendary status throughout everybody in my family. Cousins, uncles, everybody. Everybody knows that we can count on Steve to just say or do something at any time that will just get the whole house laughing. And I don't just mean giggling. I mean, we all laugh until it hurts. We'll be at a wedding or a funeral or some other kind of family gig, a family vacation even. It doesn't matter where we are at. It doesn't matter what's going on. If Steven is there, everybody knows they can count on him to say something that is so funny. And it's so funny that it usually becomes what people remember the event by. It'd be like, 
Oh, I remember when Grandma died. Oh, yeah, that was so sad. I miss Grandma. Remember when Steve started to blah, 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 blah? You know? Okay, let's see. What did Stephen do at Grandma's funeral? <laughs> he... I don't even know if I should say this. Okay, this is like back in like 1983, okay? We're just kids, and we're at my grandmother's wake. And truth be told, the funeral parlor didn't do a very good job with my grandmother, okay, at at her wake. She looked not good and borderline creepy is how I would describe it. A little disturbing, maybe, for lack of a better term. I mean, we loved our grandmother very much, God rest her soul, but they just didn't do a very good job with her at the funeral home. And Stephen was so repulsed by her appearance that he started to get physically sick and he started to puke. (laughs) Okay. So my cousin, who was a year older than me and myself and my little brother are in the bathroom at this funeral home with Steven and he's in the stall just puking his guts out. (laughs) Which is funny enough. Okay. And in between hurls, he's laughing, <laughs> and we're laughing too. <laughs> so th- they have this Dixie cup dispenser in the bathroom, and we start feeding him Dixie cups of water, like we're trying to help him out. <laughs> and <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> And of course, that's the worst thing to do when someone's throwing up because it just makes you throw up even more. (laughs) You know, we're in the bathroom for a good hour and a half while Steven's just ralphing his guts out. (laughs) That's how I spent my day at my grandma's wake. So when we talk about my grandma's wake and when grandma died, immediately, bam, that's the time that Steven was puking and he, okay, you get it. It kind of makes the memory of my grandmother dying not so sad anymore, you know. That's... (laughs) That's Steve. (laughs) And that's just one story. (laughs) Oh my gosh, is he funny. Also, too, I can tell you this really quick. There was a woman that I was friends with a while back that I had originally met through Stephen... And they were friends, and and her and I were friends, but over time, her and I wound up becoming really pretty close. And we would go out pretty much every weekend, and we would go check out live bands together. She owned a music magazine, and she was a music critic, so, you know, she always had free tickets for concerts and stuff, and she would always ask me to go. So we would go, and after the show was over, we would go get something to eat, and we would kind of review the show and talk about what stood out and those kinds of things. But, you know, after we got done talking about the band that we just saw, she'd always be like, oh, tell me a Steve story. So, you know, I started to unearth all these old stories about Steven, things that I had kind of like forgotten, but they were just so funny, like just one story after another about this guy. And she just laughed her ass off. I mean, she would be like, oh, tell me the one when he, about the time he did this, you know, and we would just both just laugh our asses off, you know, that's how funny Steven is. 
I mean, people just love this guy. And as funny as he is and as goofy as he is, I mean, there's this part of him that when he sets his mind to something, he gets what he wants. And that's from when we were kids up until this very day. Nothing ever fell into his lap except for the story that I'm about to tell you right now. And this is where it gets interesting. So, back in like the fall of 1990, November of 1990, I was at my brother Dave's house, my oldest brother. I was at his house babysitting his kids for him and my sister-in-law. And they came home and the TV was on. And the news came on and there was this guy who was on the TV back then. Uh, He was kind of a local celebrity in Cleveland. His name was Dick Fagler. And he would do these commentaries on different political issues or public concern issues and things like that. Uh, you know, whatever was in the zeitgeist at the time, he, he would comment on it. And so my brother Dave and I are standing there talking and I'm getting ready to leave. And Dick Fagler's on the TV talking, doing his commentary. And all of a sudden, Dick Fagler says my brother's name. He says Steve Bostwick. And... My brother Dave and I kind of stop talking to each other like mid-sentence and kind of look at the TV. Like, did he just say Steve? Is he talking about Steve? So, like, now we're paying attention. Like, we're watching the screen. And sure enough, Dick Fagler's going off about Steve and this piece of art that Steven had made. And it was hanging in this exhibit. And he's kind of going like, oh, it's an outrage and disgrace to the college and they should remove this piece of artwork and they should stop doing this show and all this kind of stuff right now dave and i are just totally freaking out and dave grabs the phone and he's trying to get a hold of steve and he can't find him anywhere and this is before there were cell phones or anything steve was nowhere to be found well i knew that steve was working as a dj in a bar that was in downtown cleveland I'm like, you know, he's probably working. Let's go find him and we'll tell him. So Dave and I both jump in the car and zip on over to this bar that Steve's working at. And sure enough, Steve's working and he comes down to talk to us. And we're like, dude, did you make some kind of painting or something and hang it up at Cleveland State University? And he's like, yeah, I did. How do you know about it? And we're like, Dude, you're on the news, man. Dick Fagler's doing a commentary about you and how your artwork is an outrage and everything. And Steve just kind of like went pale and his knees buckled and he sat down on the stage that he was working on and he just couldn't wrap his head around what we were telling him. Like He had no idea until we showed up and told him that he was on the news and that there was something happening around this piece of artwork that he had made. Now, it's worth mentioning right here that nobody from Cleveland State University, not a single person, called my brother to warn him that this piece of artwork that he had made was stirring up such a media frenzy. Like, nobody called to give him a warning or a heads up or anything like that. Just saying. And all three of us just kind of sat there like in total disbelief, like we couldn't believe it. And it really freaked Steve out. And if you know Steve, that's not a very easy thing to do. So now we're really off to the races with this painting that Steve did. 
Okay, so really quick, I'll explain to you what the People's Art Exhibit is. Once a year, every year, at Cleveland State University, the art department of the college sponsors an art exhibit, and it's called the People's Art Exhibit. And the premise of the whole exhibit is to exercise freedom of speech. So the only artwork that's allowed into the show is artwork that is offensive, controversial themes, anything goes. And artists from all over the region, and probably some from even out of state, will submit their art to this exhibit. And not everybody gets in. Now, in this particular situation with my brother and his artwork, the piece that he submitted was a piece that he had made in an art class that he was taking as part of his communications degree. And he had made this piece in his classroom, and his professor had taken notice of it. And he suggested to my brother that he submit this piece of artwork to the People's Art Exhibit. And so my brother did exactly that. He submitted the piece to the exhibit, and that was it. He didn't really think anything else of it. So it's worth noting that his original intention when he first made the piece of art was not for it to be in this exhibit. It was his professor that suggested he put it in there. Just saying. So my brother has submitted this art to this exhibit, and wow. I mean, he just got so much more than he bargained for. And the news of this spread almost immediately nationwide. The Associated Press picked up the story and it was coast to coast. It might have even been international. I'm not sure. But it was a pretty big controversy in the art world at that time. And it was all swirling around my brother. And now he was being compared to like Robert Maplethorpe. My, <laughs> my brother Steve was being compared to Robert Maplethorpe. So if that puts it into perspective for you, I mean, and you also have to kind of consider, at least for a moment, that out of all of the artists that submitted pieces to this show, my brother makes the piece that's so controversial that it makes the national wire. So just think about that for a minute. All these other artists, probably 200 artists, maybe more, from all over the place, submitting the most controversial work that they can muster up. And my brother unwittingly makes a piece that's so controversial that it makes the National Wire. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. That's the upside to the story. But the reality and the downside to the story is this. Throughout this whole period, when this whole situation is going on, my brother Dave and I are kind of like his bodyguards, okay? We're kind of watching his back for him, okay? And there were reporters everywhere. It was insanity. And he was getting death threats. He was getting lawsuit threats. The college was threatening to remove him from the college if he didn't take it down. So my oldest brother and I were, in essence, kind of living it out vicariously through my brother. We were, we were on the ground with him the whole time. And 
the next thing that I can remember is that one day we were at the gallery and these reporters showed up and they interviewed my brother Steve, my brother David, my girlfriend at the time, and they interviewed me. And I was really just trying to do my best to defend my brother and his position, even though I almost totally disagreed with him. Uh, I didn't like the piece of artwork. It wasn't even something that I thought was good on a technical level. And I was just trying my best in a very blunk-headed, 21-year-old intellect kind of way to defend my brother. I wasn't going to throw my brother under the bus. I mean, I just wasn't going to do it. And I remember going home that night and watching myself on the news and just like, ugh, you know, damn, not good, not good. And that was really weird, uh, a weird experience because the the media people were not objective and they were like animals, just no respect or concern or anything like that. And my brother Steve was really overwhelmed and truth be told, I think he was scared because it was really a lot bigger than he imagined it would be. And he really had a tiger by the tail. It wasn't fun. It wasn't exciting or anything like that. It was scary. It was the real deal. Now, my brother, in the heat of all of this craziness and under the threats of death and violence and lawsuits, finally caved in and took his piece of artwork down because the pressure was just crazy and he regretted it. I think he kind of, uh, he regretted backing down. He tried to put the piece back up, but the policy of the exhibit was if you take your art down, you can't put it back up. So that was it for the 1990 Steve Bostwick People's Art Exhibit experience. It ended on that level. It didn't end on the personal level. So he still had a lot of fallout from having gone through it in the first place. I mean, there were still threats and friends of his were turning their backs on him and even family members were turning their backs on him. I, of course, didn't. And I remained loyal to my brother. And I always will. Now, (laughs) as if this story weren't crazy enough and amazing enough already, fast forward to the People's Art Exhibit 1992. Same professor talks to my brother and suggests that he try again. Now, if you know my brother, this is a huge, huge Mistake because now you're giving him creative license to go as far as he possibly can. And that's a huge mistake with my brother because he'll go further than anybody else. He's already proven that, but apparently he's a glutton for punishment. So, of course, the exhibit rolls around, Stephen enters a new piece of art, and Bam! It just goes absolutely crazy. Like, you can't even imagine. It was ten times faster and ten times bigger than the first time. I think Howard Stern was commenting on it. It was international. It made the New York Times. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Reporters coming to my parents' house and harassing my parents and extended family members. 
I mean, anybody with the last name. It was absolutely off the chain. And this time it was a little bit different for Steve because I think he was prepared for it a little bit more. I think he was a little pissed off that he had taken the original artwork down back in 1990. And he kind of wanted to make it right with himself. Like he was going to do it and leave it up and that's it. Come what may. And wow, it was just 10 times worse than the first time. Now, the second time he did that at the People's Art Exhibit, that was it for them. They forced the whole organization to rethink the whole exhibit and to change their policies and to change their rules. And subsequently, since then, it can be argued that the People's Art Exhibit is now just a very diluted version of what it used to be. And it's because of my brother hitting the bullseye the second time. I mean, that that was it. And that kind of sucks. And through it all, to my brother's credit, he kept his sense of humor. And he was probably at his funniest when this situation was at its peak. Even though he was afraid, even though he was intimidated, (laughs) he was still funny. And that's the end of my story. I hope that you enjoyed it. This is your host, Mike Bostwick, the brother of Stephen Bostwick. (laughs) And the owner of Pipe Choir Records, the place where all of your dreams can come true. Signing off for now. And remember, folks, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Take it easy.